way these dictators dismantle democracy is they do it in a careful way. And if you look at how Mussolini did it in the early 20s in Italy and how Putin did it in the early 2000s in Russia, I mean, they followed almost the exact steps and almost in the same order. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the second live installment of a podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years. And the next 40. It is a disgrace that Donald Trump has, in the last days and weeks, congratulated Vladimir Putin, General al-Sisi, on their supposed electoral victories. By the time you hear this, he has probably congratulated Viktor Orban on his clean democratic re-election in Hungary as well. But this is one of those rare moments in which Trump actually is more normal than abnormal, in which he is more the rule than the exception. Because when you look around the world, you see that Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, and Claude Juncker, the President of the European Commission, also congratulated Vladimir Putin on his supposed electoral victory. You see that a few days after Germany decided to expel Russian diplomats over the Russian nerve gas attack in the United Kingdom, the German government approved the building of Nord Stream 2, which will increase the degree to which Germany's energy sector is dependent on Russia and make it much easier for Russia to antagonize countries in Eastern and Central Europe because it no longer needs to use the territory to transport gas from Russia to Western Europe. So populists are particularly prone to collaborating with dictatorships all around the world, because they see a certain kinship to them. But this is an area in which traditional politicians need to clean up their act as well. We are facing an era of resurgent authoritarianism, and it is up to the Angela Merkels and the Claude Junkers of the world, not just to the people like Donald Trump, to actually think about what it would mean to proudly defend our values in that more dangerous world. And when you look at the behavior of politicians across North America and Western Europe, they are very, very far, depressingly far from doing that right now. One of the people who knows what it means to stand up to dictators better than most is Vladimir Karamurza. Vladimir is a courageous, influential, and highly insightful opposition politician and organizer in Russia, a longtime associate of the murdered Boris Nemtsov. Vladimir has himself survived a number of assassination attempts and now serves as the vice chairman of Open Russia. Welcome to the podcast, Vladimir. Oh, yeah, it's great to be on your podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Vladimir Putin just let's say, had himself re-elected as the president of Russia, seemingly assuring his power for another five years. He was duly congratulated on his quote-unquote election by many world leaders. I have to tell you, if I were in your shoes right now, I'd be pretty depressed. So I know, Phil, that you are much more optimistic than I am. If I'm perhaps an inveterate pessimist, you are certainly an inveterate optimist. So how do you feel about the situation in Russia and the prospects for democracy there right now? Well, of course, the spectacle that we had two Sundays ago on the 18th of March, just as every spectacle that's 
still by force of habit called an election in Russia uh, in the time that Mr. Putin has been in power, that's almost two decades now, had as much in common with a genuine democratic election as the brightly painted veneer facades of a Pachomkin village had with real towns and settlements. It's an election in name only. It had no substance. It had no meaning. And I think the best description of it actually was offered by, surprisingly, the official electoral observer mission from the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And the reason I say surprisingly is because usually diplomats, especially from intergovernmental organizations, are usually cautious and, well, diplomatic in the way they describe things. But this statement was absolutely scathing. It was issued the morning after the so-called presidential elections so on the morning of the 19th of March. And the head of the short-term OSCE uh, observer mission, he's actually a member of the German Bundestag, Michael Georg Link, he said, and I quote almost exactly from memory, choice without competition is not real choice. When the fundamental freedoms are restricted and the outcome is not endowed, elections almost lose their purpose. This is what he said. And he used that word almost, again, because he's a diplomat. <laughs> but I think um, this is actually a very pointed description because for a long time now, elections in Russia have been devoid of the very meaning and the very purpose of elections, which is to empower citizens to freely choose and freely change their government. And uh, it's been said that the surest sign of a real democratic election is when you're certain about the procedure, but not certain about the outcome. And for years now, elections in our country have followed the precisely opposite model. Procedures and laws have been shifted constantly to suit the incumbent government, whereas the end result was never in doubt. I'm a little uh, disappointed in my trust in your optimism here. I agree with everything you've said. I'm um, only beginning. I'm only all right, beginning. all right, go ahead. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we can talk for a long time about all the different ways the Kremlin has managed to control and manipulate the election process at every stage of the way, from the government controlling every single national television channels, which for years have presented laudatory coverage of Mr. Putin and either ignored or denounced his opponents, to coercion and harassment of, of voters, especially those who depend on the state, on government employment, on government subsistence, people like pensioners, doctors, teachers, those in state and municipal employment. Uh, a lot of people, and there are millions of people like this in Russia, they're coerced not only just to go and vote, but they have to very often take the cell phone pictures or the selfies with a ballot paper to report to their bosses to show that they voted, quote-unquote, for the correct candidates. There were multiple instances of ballot stuffing on the 18th of March. And one of the big concessions the Kremlin had to offer after the mass anti-Putin protest we had back in 2011 was that they agreed to install web cameras at almost all polling places in the country. So anybody could log on to the website of the Central Electoral Commission, choose the polling place, and either watch it live or then download and watch the video recording. But of course, it doesn't mean much uh, when you don't have a real judicial system, which we don't have in Russia, that could prosecute election fraud. So on the 18th of March, there were numerous instances of ballot stuffing very openly, blatantly recorded on these cameras, people just coming in and, you know, stuffing stacks of ballot papers in the box, and nothing was done about it. And of course, very often, we had uh, just plain old-fashioned rigging, rewriting of official vote tallies. We have several regions in Russia. There's a prominent Russian political analyst, Dmitry Ereshkin, he calls them the electoral sultanates. These are regions that report officially Soviet-style 90% plus voting results for Vladimir Putin. I've not met anybody who actually believes those figures reflect the reality, but there are many such regions. But frankly, all of these violations, are, are, they've all been documented and reported by monitoring groups, including my own organization, Open Russia, which also conducted extensive monitoring around the country. Frankly, all of these violations are irrelevant, because in the most important way... Now, now we're getting to the optimistic bit. 
no, not not quite. Oh, not yet. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. So next time I'll just start with being optimistic. No, but <laughs> no, but um, no, I'll know. adjust my expectations. You right. Know, no, no, I remember. <laughs> I remember this. But you know, all of these violations and abuses that I've just talked about, and we can talk about many more, they are largely irrelevant because, in the most important way, the Russian presidential election of 2018 was rigged long before the first ballot was even cast and the first polling place was even opened. And again, I refer back to that OEC statement, an election without choice. There were two major opposition figures in Russia who were planning to run against Vladimir Putin in 2018. One was Boris Nemtsov, the former deputy prime minister, probably the most recognizable face of the Russian democratic opposition. And the other was Alexei Navalny, the prominent anti-corruption activist who has spent this past year campaigning all across the country. Ironically, he was the only presidential candidate who actually did some campaigning in the country. And neither of them was on the ballot on the 18th of March. Boris Nemtsov, because he was killed three years ago as he walked on the bridge in front of the Kremlin. And Navalny, because he was deliberately barred, deliberately blocked from running with a politically motivated court conviction that was cooked up by the Russian authorities and that incidentally was already overturned by the European Court of Human Rights. It's not difficult to win an election when your opponents are not actually on the ballot. And when people in the West, including in the Western media and the Western expert community, and, and you had a brilliant piece, Yasha, on this a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, on this very point, how much of the Western media still kind of talk about this election as if it were a real election. And repeat this Kremlin propaganda line that, you know, this vote reaffirmed that Vladimir Putin is so highly popular among Russian citizens. Well, I only have one question to this. Why would such a popular leader be so afraid of having a real election? And it's very important to keep in mind that the so-called popularity of Vladimir Putin was never actually tested, not once, in a free and fair election against genuine opponents. And the point you just made about the congratulations that have followed from Western leaders, this is something that is phenomenally puzzling for me. And we have had this, by the way, for years. This is nothing new. This did not happen just in 2018. For years, we have had the same picture when we have elections in Russia. You have observers from the OSCE and the Council of Europe go to monitor elections as they, as they have to under our uh, membership criteria. And every time after the year 2000, so according to international observation reports, this is not me saying, this is the OSCE and the Council of Europe. The last time we had a more or less democratic election in Russia was in the year 2000. So that's more than 18 years ago now. And even that's debatable, but that's according to them. Every election since then, both parliamentary and presidential, has fallen far short of the basic democratic minimum. And so we've had this astonishing situation when every time observers from OSCE and Council of Europe countries, so from Western democracies, would go to Russia, monitor the election and conclude that it was not a free and fair vote. And then the next day, the next morning, you would have the leaders, the presidents and prime ministers of those same Western democratic countries pick up their phones and call Mr. Putin to congratulate. What are you congratulating them on? In effect, they're congratulating him on stealing an election. And this is what so, we're So I'm trying again. to understand why they might do that, right? And I think it must come from the fact, uh, I mean, one of it is just sort of cowardice, including intellectual cowardice, that it's easier to go ahead with the thing you did last time and there's a script and you just do the same thing again. And that's something that I think we see many institutions doing as we're facing a resurgent authoritarian threat and as we're seeing the rise of populist governments in Western countries and so on. But, you know, it's easier to just keep doing what you were doing in the past, right? If in the past you pretended that the prime minister or the president of a country was democratically elected, you'll just go on doing that and treat them like you would somebody who 
is sort of deserving of that honor. But I think there's a sort of deeper second reason, which is that, well, Germany needs Russia because otherwise, if Russia turns off the gas supplies to Western Europe, German pensioners are going to starve in the winter and then the government is not going to last very long. Uh, Germany needs Russia in order to deal internationally with things like Syria and so on. And so it's tempting to just, you know, say, hey, you know what, I'm just going to congratulate them. It doesn't seem to have that much cost. And that way, perhaps we'll get along a little bit better. You know, I'm trying to formulate the alternative to that because I find that the most effective way of actually changing behavior is to show it as an effective alternative. And so the way that I've put that in the piece that you referenced is to say, well, there's a distinction between, you know, not talking to them at all, right, or denouncing them sort of full throttle and saying, no, we're going to have respectful negotiations with authoritarian powers. But in those negotiations, we will make it clear that we're not friends and that we stand for our democratic principles. But yes, we'll sit down at the table. Yes, we'll negotiate about things that different states have to negotiate with each other about. But we will always be clear, as clear that we stand on our principles as Vladimir Putin is, that he stands on his. Do you think that that would be a better solution? Do you think that wouldn't go far enough? Do you have an idea about what that would mean? I mean, if you were Angela Merkel calling Vladimir Putin on the day after the election, what would you do? Would you not call him at all? If you did call him, what do you think she should have said? Well, I think that kind of choice that you rhetorically referenced at the beginning of your question is fundamentally a false choice. The choice is not between either you break off all contact, don't talk at all, don't deal at all, or you go completely the opposite way and you legitimize and you dignify and you accept a fake rigged election and not just accept, but actually congratulate. And this is not a new dilemma. You know, in the Soviet Union, we also had quote unquote elections, right? Officially, we had elections every five years. And back then, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, there was also a lot of debate in Western capitals as to how to deal with the Soviet Union. And many of the Western leaders of that generation, you know, Jimmy Carter, Helmut Schmidt, Valery Giscard d'Estaing, and, and all the others, they also ha had these conversations among themselves of how to deal with the Soviet Union. And they dealt with the Soviet Union to varying degrees of closeness. Some of them were denounced, uh, criticized by their domestic opponents as being too willing to accommodate with the Soviet regime. Others had differently nuanced positions, but nobody, none of them, none of the Western leaders picked up the phones to congratulate Leonid Brezhnev on winning 99.9% <laughs> in the official Soviet election. Then why do they do it today? And you know, you said, what would be kind of the way forward combining all of those things? Well, many, many leaders of the past have shown the way forward. And I think a major world government should be able to do more than one thing at a time. And for example, you know, Ronald Reagan, when he was president of the US in the 80s, he, on the one hand, managed to successfully negotiate arms control with the Soviet Union. And on the other hand, he would start every summit meeting with the Soviet leadership by putting down the list of Soviet political prisoners on the table and asking for their release. That should be possible to do at the same time. And, you know, the least, I think, that can be expected from the leaders of nations and from the heads of state and government that pride themselves on their country's adherence to democratic principles and to the principles of the rule of law is that they do not congratulate a dictator on a sham election victory. And when the U.S. president congratulated Mr. Putin two weeks ago, Senator John McCain issued a very strongly worded statement the same day. And he said that this congratulation was an insult to every Russian citizen who was denied the right to vote in a free and fair election. And I also have to say that this unfortunately goes a long way back. This is a very bad US presidential bipartisan tradition. And you know, I think there are a few areas of 
continuity, at least in our domestic policies between, let's say, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and, and Donald Trump. But there is at least one, and that is that all of them tried to be friends with Vladimir Putin. Let's remember George W. Bush looking into Mr. Putin's eyes and getting a sense of his soul. Let's remember Barack Obama declaring a reset in relations with Mr. Putin and praising him for the great work he's doing on behalf of the Russian people. That's a quote. And so, in a way, what this president is doing is nothing new. And I will never forget to go back to this issue of congratulating. On the 5th of March, 2012, the day after the last so-called election victory of, of Vladimir Putin, we had a huge rally on Pushkinskaya Square right in downtown Moscow. This was the next day after Putin claimed victory. And tens of thousands of people came to protest uh, the fact that their votes were being so blatantly stolen. And I remember we were standing there, all the Russian opposition leaders were on that stage, Boris Nemtsov, Alexei Navalny, Grigory Yavlinsky, many, many others. And, and you know, as far as the eye could see, we saw just a huge sea of faces and flags, people you know, of different political persuasions, but un united by their indignation that, that their votes were being stolen in such a blatant fashion, that their rights were being trampled on so blatantly. And this was the evening in Moscow. So there's an eight-hour time difference between Moscow and Washington. And I remember that you know, this was evening in Moscow, so there must have been morning or early afternoon here in Washington. And at the precise time that we were standing there on that rally, we got news that the United States government issued a message of congratulations, not just to Vladimir Putin, that would have been half the problem, but to the people of Russia on having held this election. And I have to tell you, we didn't know whether to take that as an insult or as a mockery. And so what the U.S. president did two weeks ago is part of a long and very unfortunate bipartisan tradition, and nor is it limited to America. Many European leaders did the same. I remember, again, in 2012, the first three world leaders that called Mr. Putin to congratulate him on his quote-unquote election victory were Erdogan, Chavez, and David Cameron, the Prime Minister of Great Britain. And as you just said yourself, the first Western leaders to call Putin this time were actually the President and the Chancellor of Germany, Frank-Walter Steinmeier and Angela Merkel. And this is all the more ironic since the head of the OSC election mission that actually publicly announced that this was not a free and fair election is a member of the German parliament. Yeah, all of that is depressing. And I agree with you that um, it's not either or, right? It's not a matter of either you don't talk to a government at all and you can have no areas of cooperation or you have to pretend that a sham election is a true election. You can, you can do both things that, at the same time. Choice. But that goes in a way to a larger confusion, I think, in a lot of Western countries about how to deal with Russia, right? You know, I think there's one school of thought that says we should see them as enemies and everything and, 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 and try to avoid negotiating with them at all and just sort of push back completely, right? If there's another set of thought which is quite influential in Europe and used to be very influential in the United States as well, so I think it's becoming less so, at least in the opposition, which is to say, well, you know, Putin is just sort of misunderstood and, you know, you sort of have an attitude towards him like a social worker. You know, he's just sort of a teenager who's acting out. He's a little offended that the West didn't treat Russia as an equal partner in the 90s and 2000s. So we just have to push him a little bit of respect and that'll somehow help. I mean, I think clearly neither of those causes of action are the right ones. I mean, is there anything at all that Western Europe and the United States can actually do to help the opposition in Russia? Or, you know, is the dictatorship so entrenched and is any attempt to help democratic forces in Russia in itself going to undermine the legitimacy of opposition forces to such an extent as not as being sort of foreign agents or whatever, that there's really very little we can do? Well, first of all, let me make it absolutely clear. We, we meaning the Russian opposition, we never asked 
we never ask and never will ask the West or Western governments to support us. That is, a, of course, a false narrative put out by the Kremlin propaganda. You know, any, anytime any of us go to any of the Western capitals to uh, meet the journalists, the politicians, the members of parliament who take part in a podcast such as this, you know, Russian state TV trumpets out that we, uh, you know, we're foreign agents, we are agents of foreign influence, enemies and traitors and all the rest of it. You know, their line is that anytime we come to Western countries, it is to ask for money or for political support or to ask Western governments to affect regime change in Russia, whatever other nonsense they come up with. Of course, none of that, needless to say, is true. We never ask the West to support us, the Russian opposition. The only thing we do ask is that the West stops, in effect, supporting Vladimir Putin by, first of all, treating him as a worthy and a respectable partner on the world stage, which it has been doing for years. And secondly, and that's perhaps even more important, by allowing his cronies, the Putin regime cronies, to use Western countries as havens for their looted wealth. Because that is what these people have been doing for years. I mean, there's this absolutely phenomenal hypocrisy and double standard that is built right in the heart of the Putin system of power, whereby the people, the officials and the oligarchs who make up the Putin regime, these people fundamentally, you know, they attack and undermine and abuse the most fundamental norms of democracy and the rule of law in Russia. But they themselves want to enjoy the privileges and the perks of democracy and rule of law in Western countries, because it is in Western countries that they send their children to schools, that they open bank accounts, that they buy mansions, villas, yachts, uh, you know, keep their wives and their mistresses and all the rest of it. So they want to steal in Russia, but spend in the West. And that is what they have been doing for years. And of course, on, on their part, needless to say, constitutes enormous hypocrisy, but on the part of Western countries, in my opinion, that constitutes enabling. Because, you know, for somebody to export corruption, somebody else needs to import it. And if you are welcoming the people who perpetrate corruption and human rights abuses in Russia on your soil and in your banks, then you are, in effect, enabling human rights abuses and corruption in Russia. And the only thing we do ask of the West is to stop that. And it's very heartening to see that in the last few years, there has finally begun this movement across the Western world to put an end to this hypocritical practice. And a little more than five years ago, the U.S. became the first country in the world to pass a law that was called the Magnitsky Act that introduced this principle that if you engage in this type of behavior in your own country, if you engage in corruption and human rights abuses in your own country, you will no longer be entitled to receive a visa, own assets, or use the banking and financial system, in this case of the United States. There have been four other countries since that have passed the same laws. There are Canada and the three Baltic states. I always say that the three most courageous countries in the European Union are the three former Soviet republics that border Russia. None of the old big European countries have done it yet, but we're working with them. And it is heartening to see, actually, in this day and age, that those people who stand up for values and principles can still overcome the cynicism and the realpolitik. And when the Magnitsky Act was passed here in the US, the vote in the House of Representatives was in November of 2012. And on that day, this was November the 16th, 2012, Boris Nemtsov and I were sitting on the balcony here in the US House of Representatives chamber on Capitol Hill watching as they voted on the bill. And it was passed with more than 80% of the votes in the House and then more than 90% in the Senate. And I remember Boris said to me, this is the most pro-Russian law ever passed in any foreign country, because mm -hmm. it holds to account the people who steal from Russian taxpayers and who abuse the rights of Russian citizens. And we hope that more of the world's democracies take a lead in this and send a clear message that the crooks and the human rights abusers will no longer be welcome.
So you're right, there's a sort of irony there, right? Where on the one hand, Russian oligarchs and members of the Putin regime actually love the West. That's where they spend a good bit of their time. That's where they park their money. That's where they send their children to go to school and university, right? On the other hand, they are undermining the democratic institutions of the West. And we've seen, obviously, we're still starting to understand the exact extent of Russia's meddling in the U.S. elections, of the Russian attempt to influence elections in France and Germany and other countries. But it's quite clear that it's substantive. So I'm trying to understand what you think the motives behind that are. What is the end game here? Is it actually to undermine democracies in countries like the United States to such an extent that you install dictatorships that can have friendly relationships with Russia? Is it simply to get favored candidates elected? Is it just to weaken these societies so that they can less effectively stand up to Russian expansionism in parts of Eastern Europe and Central Asia? What do you think the goal here is? And what does that imply for how countries like the United States should respond? First of all, let's clear the terminology. In that question, you said several times, Russian meddling, Russian attempts, Russian behavior. I am a former journalist myself. I understand shorthand. But please not let use the word Russia when you mean the Putin regime. Those are not one and the same that's, thing. That's a fair and important And too point. many people in the West equate our whole country with a small authoritarian unelected clique that is sitting in the Kremlin. And please don't do that. That's what the Kremlin would like you to do. One of Putin's closest aides, Vyacheslav Volodin, who was back then when he said it, he was a deputy chief of staff of the Kremlin. Now he's the speaker of the Duma. He said publicly on the record a couple of years ago, I quote, there's no Russia without Putin. Now, to me as a Russian citizen, I can think of nothing more insulting to say about my country. But apart from being insulting, it is also not true because there are many people and many voices and many viewpoints in Russia. And this regime does not speak for us. It's not a democratically elected government. So they would like the whole world to associate Russia with them. Please don't fall into that trap. I, I, I agree very much. Uh, but on the substance of, of your question, of course, we know that the Kremlin has been interfering in elections for years. Now, the first elections they started to interfere with were elections in Russia. So when Mr. Putin came to power all those years ago, Russia was basically a democratic country. And flawed, imperfect, to be sure, but a functioning democracy. Now it's, it's a full-fledged authoritarian system. So the first elections they began to meddle with were, were elections in Russia itself. But then, of course, they began to overstep the borders and try to do it in other countries. And we know that they've been involved or trying to get involved in political affairs of many post-Soviet states across, you know, Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova, many others. We know that they've been trying to involve themselves in political affairs of Western European countries. A few years ago, there was a multi-million euro loan issued quite openly from a Moscow-connected bank to the far-right Front National Party in France ahead of the French elections. This is what we know from public information. Imagine how many things we don't know for now. And of course, if it is proven that the Kremlin has tried to interfere in the American election in 2016, that would not be surprising at all. Because, you know, from their point of view, why shouldn't they? They've been doing it with complete impunity for years. And as for the goal, well, actually, the goals are different from country to country. So, for example, when uh, Mr. Putin began to attack, this time actually quite physically, literally, not figuratively, attack Ukraine in 2014, I think the main reason for that was purely domestic. It was not about spheres of influence or geopolitics. That could have been an added benefit from their point of view. But I think the absolutely principal reason for what Putin did and continues to do to Ukraine was that he really did not enjoy the precedent of what happened in Ukraine in 2014. And that is when a corrupt, authoritarian strongman was forced out of power by hundreds of thousands of people who came out to the streets of the capital, especially in a country 
that is so close to Russia, historically and mentally and culturally and uh, linguistically in every other way, as Ukraine is. He really didn't like that precedent. That was an analogy that was too close to home for him. So, in my view, he set out to destroy or try to destroy the democratic experiment in Ukraine before it would become a contagious example from his point of view for, to Russian society. When it comes to what he's been doing in Western countries, I think it's more of an attempt just to sow chaos. So, so I agree with that description, but what's the point of sowing chaos? What's he trying to get out of that? Because obviously, as we know, there is a lot of criticism from people in the West towards what Putin has turned the Russian political system into. There's a lot of criticism to how Putin basically destroyed democracy in Russia and, uh, you know, made elections meaningless and all the rest of it. So for him, I mean, that's an old Soviet era tactic, actually. So when there were criticized on something than the Soviet government by Western leaders, it would immediately find something wrong in that country and say, oh, but look at yourselves, you know, the, what aboutism? And this is what they're trying to do. So, you know, they sow chaos and then they say, oh, look, but your system is not much better than you saying that we have problems. Look at yourselves. Look at what you have in there. I think that's actually the primary reason for what they're doing. And if you look at the different types of forces they have been supporting over the years in Western countries, there is no consistent ideology to this. So it's not like back in the Soviet times when there were millions of dollars flowing from the Communist Party of the Soviet Union to friendly communist parties in Western countries, here in Western Europe, in all the other countries in the world. Now, the Kremlin is supporting whoever it thinks fits its goals at the moment. I mean, it's supporting the far right, as I mentioned in the case of France. It's also working extensively with the far left, the communists, the Stalinists. I mean, if you look at the composition of the so-called European election observation mission that went to observe the so-called referendum in Crimea, the annexation referendum in March of 2014, it was actually a remarkable group. It consisted of, you know, people who probably usually don't even say hello to each other. I mean, they had the Stalinists, the Nazis, the communists, some Greens, all in the same, and people from the... This is a fake of sort of election observing mission. Right, of course, going all to say yes, the referendum was above board. Which is what so. they did, which is what they did. Right, right. And, and if you look at the same pattern, so every time we have an election in Russia, there is an official observer mission coming in usually from OSC and the Council of Europe. This time, the Council of Europe was not invited, the OSC was. But then, of course, they make a point, and they know that there's going to be criticism from these legitimate international observers. So they always make a point of setting up these fake observation groups mm -hmm. that, again, are usually composed of people on the far right and the far left, so on the fringes of, of politics in, in Western countries, who come in and who say that, I remember in 2011, when we had the parliamentary election that was infamously blatantly rigged, and after that we had hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of Moscow protesting. During that election, there was this alternative observer mission that was led by Nick Griffin, who was at the time a member of the European Parliament from the UK. He was leader of the British National Party, a far-right, basically fascist party in the UK, who came in. And I'll never forget, he was featured in Russian state television, and of course the title said member of the European Parliament, which he was. And he said that I have never seen elections in Britain that were so honest and democratic as what I've just seen here. And then these are the, well, as Lenin called them, useful idiots. Nothing changes much in this regard. So I know from past conversations we've had that you don't just criticize me when I slip up and say the Russians rather than the Kremlin. And you're absolutely right to point that out. That is an important distinction. You also are a little impatient when people mention too many kinds of political leaders under the same category. So there's a huge distinction that we should always be mindful of between somebody like Vladimir Putin, who has effectively taken control of the media in Russia, who has rendered elections there meaningless, who has murdered a number of his political opponents, or at least it, it is plausible to think that the Kremlin apparatus has had them murdered, 
And even people, let's say like Viktor Orban in Hungary or Jarosław Kaczynski in, in Poland, who are attacking democratic institutions in serious way, who have undermined the independence of the judiciary, who have turned state television radio stations into propaganda tools, who have, through various incentives, forced the sale of private institutions into the hands of people who are more friendly to them, but who do allow some critical coverage, who don't give a free and fair chance in Hungary's case to the opposition to run, but they don't straight out outlaw any serious opposition from running. So there's an important distinction there. There's also an important distinction between what Viktor Orban has already done in Hungary and the worrying signs in the United States, right? So Donald Trump has said that he would leave people in suspense about the outcome of the American presidential election. He has called for his adversary, Hillary Clinton, in the last election to be locked up. In the last days and weeks, he has suggested, for example, that the Washington Post should register as a lobbyist, which is exactly the kind of regulatory approach to trying to silence the opposition that we've seen in other countries. And yet it's clear that in the United States for now, we do have a very robust free press. That for now, we can be reasonably certain, despite some of the longstanding challenges of elections in the United States, that we will have free and fair elections, largely free and fair elections in the upcoming midterms. How does your perspective from Russia make you see the danger that American democracy is or perhaps isn't in now? How do you interpret those kinds of warning signs against the background of what we've experienced in Russia? Well, first of all, I'm going to be careful about what I say about domestic U.S. politics. It seems there are enough Russians trying to meddle into your affairs here. I don't, want to, I don't want to be one more. So I'll be careful about what I say. And thank you for raising this point, actually. It's sometimes people rhetorically equate you know, the, the problems that may exist in, in Western democratic countries with, for example, what we have in Russia, and there is no comparison. And you said it very well, I think, that the basic fact is that the people who are radical political opponents of uh, the current U.S. President Donald Trump, they are sitting in Congress. And come November, or rather January, they may well be in a majority in the U.S. Congress. The people who are prominent opponents of Vladimir Putin are in prison, in exile, or dead. And that is a fundamental difference. So there is no, in reality, there's no comparison, in my view, about the many problems that may exist in Western political systems and what we are facing in Russia. Having said that, I do think that it's incumbent on citizens everywhere in all countries not to take the democratic freedoms for granted. And I think it's important. I think it's an accepted notion. I'm not saying anything new here, but I think democracies depend on their survival and active citizens who are prepared to stand up for their rights and their freedoms. And I think it's important not to be complacent about these things anywhere. Well, let me push you on that a little bit because, you know, you've seen that process play out in your country. I mean, Russia never had an entrenched democracy or consolidated democracy in the way the United States now has. But certainly it was much closer to being a democratic country in the 1990s than it is now. And you saw how an authoritarian leader slowly abolished press freedom, for example. So what signs would you watch for? If you were in the United States right now, what is it that would actually concern you? And what is it where you would say, eh, that's not great, but you know what, don't lose your head over it? Well, we're both historians. And as we know, historic analogies are never exact. But I think there is actually a very close analogy between what Putin did when he came to power in Russia and how he incrementally and carefully dismantled a Russian democracy and how Mussolini did it in Italy in the early 1920s. 
think if there was an analogy, it is that. And Mussolini himself actually even coined the phrase of how to do these things. He said, pluck the chicken feather by feather to lessen the squawking. So in other words, do it incrementally, do it gradually, not try to do it in one day. I mean, you know, military coups are passé. The way these dictators dismantle democracy is they do it in a careful way. And if you look at how Mussolini did it in the early 20s in Italy and how Putin did it in the early 2000s in Russia, I mean, they followed almost the exact steps and he, almost in the same order. Well, what were those um, steps? So the first thing that Putin began with, and by the way, I think it's important to state, I mean, you're right, that Russia was never, you know, developed traditional democracy, of course, but back in the 90s, and I'm old enough to remember this, unlike now we have a whole generation that grew up under Putin that does not remember anything else. I'm old enough to remember when we had real elections in Russia, when elections actually mattered, when election results were determined by how people voted. That's a revolutionary concept for us today. I'm old enough to remember when parliaments in Russia had an opposition majority, a majority that was in opposition to the incumbent president. That's unthinkable. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when national television channels offered hard-hitting criticism of the government and the president. When Putin came to power in at the end of 99, beginning of 2000, three out of the four nationwide television channels in Russia were not controlled by the government. They were privately owned. And this was his first target. So when he came to power, we have the saying in the Russian language, those who will offend us will not live for three days. Well, almost in the keeping with that saying, on day four after his inauguration as president in May of 2000, Mr. Putin <coughs> sent armed operatives from the tax police and the prosecutor general service to raid the offices of Media Most, which was at the time the largest independent media holding in Russia, and the parent company of NTV, which was the largest independent television channel in Russia. Within the first year of his presidency, Putin had NTV forcefully taken over by the state. Physically, in the middle of the night, they came in, armed operatives, and seized the studios, kicked the journalists out. And within uh, the first three years of his rule, he had either shut down or taken over every single nationwide television channel in Russia. The last one was shut off actually by the order of the press minister that didn't even keep up pretenses. This was in June of 2003. And so, so step one, control the media. Step one is the media. Step two, and by the way, 2003 was a crucial year because, I mean, there was no single date, you know, when we could say that Russia ceased being a democracy and became an authoritarian state because, again, he did this gradually and incrementally, but if I were to name a year, it would be 2003 because three different things happened in that one year. So in June of 2003, Putin's government shut down the last independent nationwide television channel, literally pulled the plug, switched the signal. The second thing that happened, that was in October of 2003, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who was the richest businessman in Russia at the time, who was the head of the Yukos Oil, that was the largest private oil company, and who also behaved in a very independent fashion. He openly supported opposition parties, for example, and opposition candidates in elections. He supported NGOs, civil society groups. He supported a project to spread the internet into the Russian regions, especially in the schools and universities in Russian regions. And for a long time, the Kremlin was sending messages to him that, you know, perhaps you shouldn't do that. And his position always was, you know, I'm, I'm a citizen of my country. This is what I think is the right thing to do. I'm going to continue doing this. So in the early morning of the 25th of October, 2003, when Khodorkovsky's plane made a refueling stop uh, in the airport of Novosibirsk, armed FSB operatives came on his plane, handcuffed him, put him on a different plane, flew him back to Moscow, put him physically in a cage in a Moscow courtroom, and put in state TV cameras and paraded the image of the richest man in Russia sitting physically in a cage as a clear message to everybody else, to the entire Russian business community, that if you behave like him, 
you're going to end up like him. So that's step two, intimidate. That's step two. You remove the sources of support for independent and opposition political activity, mm -hmm. which is what they did with Khodorkovsky. After him, after his arrest, not a single representative of, of big business in Russia dared to behave in the way that Khodorkovsky did. And by the way, Khodorkovsky would spend more than 10 years in prison for nothing, for daring to support the opposition, after which he was physically kicked out, very much in the way of the old Soviet dissidents. He was taken from his prison cell, put on a German plane, actually, belonging to the former German foreign minister, Hans Dietrich Genscher, and physically flown from St. Petersburg to Berlin. And he's now in forced exile. So this was step two. Step three, same year, again, still, we're still in 2003. In December of 2003, we had a parliamentary election in Russia, which was the first election in Russia since the end of Soviet one-party rule that was assessed by international observers as not fair. And the result of that election, I remember that election very well, I was a candidate in that election for the Russian parliament. This was just after we'd graduated from university, and by the way, Yash and I were in the same university all those years ago. So we graduated in 2003, I went back to Russia, and I ran for that election in December to the State Duma, and this was the famous description offered by Council of Europe observers was that it was still free but already not fair. So this was kind of a transitional. So we, we could still be on the ballot. Which is probably, by the way, a decent description of the last Hungarian election. So the ones we have in Russia are neither free nor fair. That one in 2003 was, they said it was still free in a sense that we could at least have access to the ballot. I mean, now, as we already discussed, mm. genuine opponents are not even allowed on the ballot in the first place. Back then we were. So but, I was but, a registered candidate. Boris Nemtsov was a registered candidate. But it was not possible for us to win. And so in December 2003, Mr. Putin basically ejected the genuine opposition voices from the Russian parliament, turning the Russian parliament into what it is today, basically a rubber stamp, very similar to the Supreme Soviet back in the Soviet days. And it was also in December 2003 that the new speaker of the Russian parliament, Boris Grislov, close confidant of Mr. Putin, said his famous phrase when he was responding to a question from a journalist about some parliamentary procedure, he turned to him and said, Parliament is not a place for discussion. And I think that's going to be one of the defining quotes about the Putin regime in future history books. And that unfortunately is true. Since 2003, Parliament has not been a place for discussion. I spoke recently at a conference and the person who spoke before me was an activist from Papua New Guinea. He was a pro-democracy activist and he came to speak and he said that, you know, the situation in our country is so bad, we only have one genuine opposition member in our parliament. And so I came up to him in, in a break and I said, well, you know, that's one more than we have. We have zero. <laughs> and so that was step three. And by the way, in, in the step one bit, where we were talking about the destruction of independent media, that was actually accompanied by the destruction of independent judiciary as well. Because one of the ways in which Putin managed to subjugate and destroy independent media is by using the courts to issue you know, verdicts against those media outlets to kind of give it a veneer of legitimacy. Right, right. And then the final thing they did in 2004, after the horrendous terrorist attack on a school in Beslan, Putin used that attack as a pretext to abolish direct elections for regional governors in Russia. So for almost 10 years, we had no elections for regional governors in a country that's still officially called the Russian Federation. Since 2012, after the mass protests in Moscow, the Kremlin was forced to reinstate elections for regional governors, but they qualified them with a requirement that anybody who wants to be a candidate has to collect enough signatures from local officials who are, of course, all subordinate to, or most of them subordinate to the government. So that's another way that they control who is actually on the ballot. So I would say 2003 was probably the year when Russia went from being a democracy to being an authoritarian state. So when I look at this list, the first is attacks on the media. The second is to try to remove sources of support for the opposition. 
The third is trying to render elections unfair, even if they continue to be free for a little while. And the fourth then is sort of using events like terror attacks in order to concentrate power in the hands of your executive in certain ways. That's a very good summary, actually, um, yes. Thank you very much. I'd like you, I'm an historian. You are a Cambridge summarize, yeah. Nothing, nothing less um, would be expected from the, um <laughs> It seems to me that, uh, and again, I want to be very, very careful not to equate you, right? Because there are obviously huge disanalogies. But I would say that there are at least some ways in which Donald Trump doesn't perhaps seem to be plucking each of these individual feathers, but certainly seems to be sort of playing around with them and perhaps trying to yank them a little bit. Um, so talking about the media, right? He is denouncing independent media institutions as fake news, and he has suggested that the Washington Post should register as a lobbyist. He has said that we should have a change in libel laws, which would make it much easier to sue independent media outlets. When you look at the second step, remove sources of support, I think that's the way to understand things like his war with Jeff Bezos, who you know, both controls Amazon and in certain ways the Washington Post, right? That he is precisely saying, if you are going to be supporting independent media outlets, you might be punished for that in one way or another. You might suddenly find your core business to be making a lot less profit than you did previously. And arguably, that's what happened in the merger of Time Warner, the parent company of CNN, and AOL. When you look at non-fair elections, you had the abortive attempt to have a voter fraud commission that looked into fictitious accusations of voter fraud in order to potentially make changes to elections that might be worrying. Now, two caveats. First, we haven't seen an attempt to use some horrendous event in order to concentrate power. And there's been no real suggestions of that. There also hasn't been that event so far. There isn't an obvious moment in which Donald Trump could have suggested something like that. But we've certainly not seen that. And he hasn't really gone through on the first three points in anything resembling what Vladimir Putin did. But when you see his willingness to play with attacks on the media, to play with ways of punishing somebody like Jeff Bezos for supporting the Washington Post, his attempt to play with potentially making elections a little bit less fair. Does that concern you? Do you see parallels there or, or do you think that's unhelpful? First of all, you're trying again to draw me into commenting on US politics, which I'm going to continue to resist to do. But I do want to say that even in the way you phrased your question, you know, you use words like said, called, you could add tweeted or something like that. You know, by this stage in his first presidential term, Putin had already shut down two of the three independent nationwide TV channels. He'd already gone after the judiciary. I think I want to go back to how you started this question, that there is, at the end, there is no equivalence. There is no equivalence between things that people say that a lot of people can find offensive or undemocratic even. Look, I agree that there's no equivalence, and that's not the point, right? But when you look at somebody like Recep Erdogan in Turkey, who at this point is a dictator. Oh, there there is a lot of equivalence, of course. I, I was just talking about... No, no I know, but, yeah. right. But, but, but you know, you're right that two or three years into Vladimir Putin being in office, it's pretty clear where Russia is headed. Two or three years into Recep Erdogan being in office in Turkey, it's not clear where Turkey mm -hmm. is headed, right? In fact, a lot of newspapers in Turkey, in Europe, in the United States 
were saying that, hey, he seems to be importing a sort of Muslim form of Christian democracy into the country. And that actually, in many ways, seems to be deepening democracy there. And yet there were worrying signs, which were a little bit like what we've just been talking about, right? So I'm not asking you to sort of comment on the analogy to Putin exactly. I'm asking you to say, you've set out this four-point plan of how people have dismantled democracy. Let's take it away from the United States. You see the kinds of actions that I've described. Do you think that somebody playing with those actions but not going through is a sign of the strength of the system? Or do you think the, the willingness to play with those actions should have us concerned about what might happen next? I just fundamentally think, you know, without commenting on a specific individual or any specific party or administration, I just fundamentally think that countries that have centuries of democratic traditions behind them, that have centuries of developing democratic institutions, checks and balances, centuries of developing a democratic culture, which is something, unfortunately, that we in Russia did not have when Putin came to power. That's something Turkey did not have. That's something Venezuela did not have, to use another uh, example of a very close analogy, actually, with, in the way the regime was structured. I just think any such developments in countries with such strong traditions of democratic governance uh, are impossible. Do you think they're possible? I do. Well, on that very optimistic note, I hope very much that you will be proved to be right. Uh, thank you so much, Vladimir. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Set up a botnet that spams people with advertisements for the good fight. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.